Church, it's good to be with you today. We're faced with yet another difficult text as we're going through the gospel of Matthew. That's kind of the difficulty and also the privilege, the safety of working through God's word, through the book of the Bible. In God's providence, he gets to choose what we talk about next. And so though it may be difficult, we know that it's good. That's why we receive it with thankful hearts, that while it may be painful for some of us to hear what we're going to hear today, that we know ultimately it comes from the heart of Jesus, who has proven himself to us faithful over and over again, who has proven his love for us over and over again. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 today, where Jesus is answering a question about divorce. He's answering a question about divorce. The Pharisees They come to trap him, test him, yet once again, they ask him another question, this time regarding divorce. But the way that Jesus answers their question is not by focusing on divorce directly, but by focusing on the ideal of marriage, by focusing on God's original purpose and plan for marriage. And that's what we want to do today as well. Though we live in a broken world, where the ideal is almost never a reality, right? Nevertheless, we want to be reminded of the ideal. We want to be reminded of God's original intent and design for something as precious as marriage, and we want to be a people that pursue the ideal with all of our hearts. Now, I know that in a church of our size that many of you have experienced the pain of divorce, Either you failed or someone has failed you or you failed each other in keeping that promise and keeping the covenant that you made with one another before God on that once happy day. But what we need to first and foremost remember, even before we begin, is that though you might have failed or or though someone might have failed you, that Jesus will never fail you. He will never fail you. He will always keep his promise to you. We need to remember that even if you might have failed, you might have failed him, he will still be faithful to you. He'll never let you go. And for some, perhaps, God has given you the grace of a second marriage. And we need to remember that our God is a God who makes all things new, makes all things new, and he's inviting you to be faithful in your current marriage covenant to be a reflection of the covenant relationship that Christ has with his church. For all the single brothers and sisters in Christ in the room, we see you, we love you. Talking about marriage and divorce may be painful for you for entirely different reasons. But know that though you may not now be a part of an earthly marriage covenant, you are assuredly a part of the heavenly marriage covenant that the earthly one is just the shadow of, right? And so as Jesus is speaking today, know that he has you in mind as well. So by God's grace today, let's look at what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 19. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 19, verses one through 12. We won't be able to get through everything in detail, but we'll try our best. It says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciple said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So lots of text. Um, And so as we look at this text together, let's divide it up like this. First, the question of divorce. First, the question of divorce. Second, the meaning of marriage. Third, the hope in our failures. The question of divorce, the meaning of marriage, and the hope in our failures. First, the question of divorce. The social and religious context in which this question is being asked is very important. Matthew tells us in verse 1 that large crowds were following Jesus, right? As Jesus was teaching them, as he was healing them. In other words, Jesus was very popular, and the Pharisees didn't like that. They didn't like their power and their influence being diminished, being challenged. And so they came to Jesus with the question in order to test him, it says. In the midst of this large crowd, they asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There were two schools of thought at the time. One was led by Rabbi Hillel, and the other was led by Rabbi Shammai. These two schools differed in the way that they interpreted Deuteronomy chapter 24, in which Moses gave a concession for divorce. It said this, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, okay? And so Deuteronomy chapter 24 was in fact a gracious concession given to a rebellious, hard-hearted people. It was a concession given to provide protection for women as only men could institute divorce at that time. And they were doing it on a whim. They were doing it with no regard for the women that they were sending out. Women who were divorced were sent out of their homes, exposed and vulnerable, unless they had a certificate of divorce that showed that they were free to remarry. This certificate of divorce, though not ideal, and we're going to see Jesus correct this view of easy divorce, but the reason why the certificate of divorce was allowed 
was for the physical, social, and spiritual protection of women in that society. There was nothing like this in any of the other cultures. There was nothing like this in any of the other, other kingdoms, only here in God's kingdom. Because the men of the society were being so flippant about the marriage covenant, this concession served to protect God's people from experiencing the full consequence of their sin, okay? But instead of seeing this merciful heart behind the, behind the concession, these Pharisees were trying to pick apart God's word, right? They were trying to figure out what exactly constituted a wife no longer finding favor in the man's eyes and what constituted this word indecency, right? In other words, they were asking, what's the minimum? What's the minimum I can justify as some indecency so I can divorce my wife? The Shammai school said that the phrase some indecency meant unfaithfulness. They said no divorce except in the case of adultery. While the Hillel school relaxed much more this phrase, some indecency, and they said that even if your wife burns your dinner, even if she's a bad cook, you could divorce your wife. The Hillel school said that even if she was no longer attractive to you, you could divorce her. The Hillel school was a lot like today's school. Some indecency was used as generally and as loosely as irreconcilable differences is used today. The Pharisees were pulling Jesus into this discussion because they knew that the people wouldn't tolerate a no-divorce leader. Similar to today, divorce was, divorce was too rampant. It was too every day. The Pharisees knew that the people wouldn't tolerate a leader that took too much of a hard line against divorce. And so Jesus' teaching here isn't towards divorce people directly, okay, you guys see that, but towards religious power mongers trying to use rules about divorce to advance their own agenda. It's important to know that the content the content of Jesus' teaching here on divorce is very much true and relevant in providing us instruction on question of divorce. But the tone, but the tone of Jesus here is aimed at religious hypocrites. Because if you look at the way that Jesus spoke to the woman who had gone through multiple divorces in John chapter 4, Jesus' posture is very different. He still calls her to obedience, but he doesn't condemn her or shame her with a explicit shaming teaching on divorce. Instead, he loves her and he saves her and he changes her heart, right? So this is the context in which we get to the question of divorce. But nevertheless, here we are. What will Jesus say about divorce? Are we free to get a divorce for any cause, like the Pharisees are asking? And if not for any cause, is there a cause in which Jesus would allow for divorce? How does Jesus answer? Verse four, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. First, notice Jesus answers by saying, have you not read? That's the first thing he says, right? Have you not read? Jesus doesn't say, now, here's what I think. Or he doesn't say, well, here's my opinion on the matter, right? He doesn't say, well, here's how, how, how I feel about it. 
If anybody could have said, my thoughts are, my opinion is, and it would have been authoritative, it was Jesus, right? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, have you not read? Nor does he say, well, here's what the people are doing these days. Nor does he say, well, yes, there's the ideal, but it's a broken world and God forgives, right? He doesn't lower God's standards. He points to it. Jesus doesn't point to the popular opinion of the day. He doesn't even point to his own opinion, but instead he says, have you not read? Have you not read what God's word says? Too many times we fall into the trap of even contemplating divorce because we're listening to opinion rather than listening to God's word. We're saying, but this is just how I feel, right? We're saying, but this is what my friends think. We're saying, this is what my therapist said. Jesus skips all that. He doesn't even point to his own opinion, but instead he just says, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read God's word on the matter? His appeal is to God's word, not man's opinion. And what does the word of God say? He points back to Genesis. He points back to God's original intent and design for marriage. Now, the question was about divorce, right? When is it okay to divorce? The Pharisees are pointing to divorce and saying, let's talk about divorce. But Jesus is answering by saying, he's pointing to marriage and he's saying, let's talk about marriage. He's saying the only reason you're asking about divorce so flippantly is because you don't understand the true meaning and purpose of marriage. Jesus doesn't answer the question about divorce by diving into a bunch of if-then scenarios, right? There may be a place for that, but that's not his first answer. And so we're not going to dive into an academic exercise of trying to determine all the scenarios in which divorce is permitted or not. But with that said, we do want to acknowledge and be sensitive to the fact that you may have those real questions, right? Not just because you're theologically curious, but because you're personally walking through some things right now and it's really making you question, is divorce an option, right? And so we want to let you know that there's pastors, there's elders here for you that can counsel you, pastor you through whatever you're going through and walk with you in it, okay? But the first thing we need to do, the first thing Jesus wants us to do is look at what God's word has to say about marriage. He points to Genesis 1.27 where it says that from the beginning, God created them male and female. And he points to Genesis 2.24 where it says Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. First, Jesus says that marriage is a union between one man and one woman. One implication being that gender matters in a biblical marriage, but also that an explicit lifelong commitment that is willing to abandon all other contingencies matter in a biblical marriage. Pastor Tony Evans said this about this text. He said, when God created Adam and Eve, he created no extras. He created the male, singular, female, singular. He didn't create males and females. He created a male and a female. So Adam, when he married Eve, didn't have another option. He had to le learn to live with the one he had. He had to, in the words of the Isley brothers, love the one you're with. He had to. 
He had to be locked in because there was only two of them. He was forcing them to understand that God gave no spare tires, no spare parts, no extra provision. He created this one man and he created this one woman that they might have this one relationship. And even when they got kicked out of the garden for sin and God told them, you're going to have to sweat now. There's going to be conflict now. He never gave them an option out of it because of the reality of the pain in it. He created that man for that woman and that's how he did it. What's Pastor Tony Evans saying? He's saying that for better or for worse, through the better of the garden or through the worse of the thorns and thistles, God bound Adam to Eve, and he bound Eve to Adam. No spare parts. There were no contingency plans. Too many marriages today begin with contingency plans, right? What are we going to do? What am I going to do if this doesn't work, right? But when we all take the marriage vows, we say things like, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. When when we're making the vows, we allow for no contingencies. Why? Because we're saying this is how it's supposed to be, right? But when it comes down to it, we give into our plans that are not said. What we see from Genesis 2.24 is that marriage is not merely a human agreement, but a covenant relationship in which God does the binding together. God does the binding together. It's a God-binding union in which he changes your very identity, it says. He changes your ontological status from being two separate individual human beings. You are no longer two, but one, he says. He forms you into a new family such that your primary human loyalty is now to each other before anyone else to the point that you leave your father and mother. In other words, the husband-wife relationship takes precedence even over the parent-child relationship. Many marriages are in trouble today because you're cultivating and you're valuing the parent-child bond over the husband and wife bond, right? Like our pastor Matt Carter used to say, leave the squids at home. Leave the squids at home and go on a date. Cultivate your husband and wife bond, right? What Jesus is saying is that from the very beginning, from the moment that God thought up Adam and Eve, he thought up marriage. Marriage is something that's intimately close to God's heart. In fact, the Bible begins with the marriage, right? And it ends with the marriage, the marriage. The first daughter to be walked down the aisle by her heavenly father. To join her hand in hand was Eve. With her husband was Eve, and when God officiated that first wedding ceremony, he had one man and one woman for a lifetime in mind. Divorce was never a part of the plan because the first marriage and all the subsequent marriages of his people after were to be a pointer to that last marriage, the marriage between Christ and his church. 
Paul in Ephesians points to the same text in Genesis that Jesus points to and shows us the ultimate purpose of Christian marriages, that it points to Christ and the church. He says, Ephesians 5, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, right? Both Paul, Jesus pointed to the same text in Genesis. This is the purpose. The mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It points to Christ and the church. It is a parable of, it is a reflection of Christ and the church. And so when you truly look at the original meaning and the purpose of marriage, how it is an earthly covenant between a man and a woman designed to point to the heavenly covenant between Jesus and his church, you begin to realize that at the very beginning, at least in its original intent and design, the idea of divorce was non-existent. That's Jesus's point. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the reason why God uses such strong language in Malachi 2 where he says, I hate to divorce because divorce says something about the covenant relationship between Christ and his church that's patently false. It communicates that things can get so bad that we can sin and be unfaithful to such an extent that at some point, Jesus will say to us, I've had enough. I'm done with you. I'm divorcing you. That though Paul in Romans triumphantly writes, Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That though he with absolute certainty proclaims in verse 38, for I am sure, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That when Christians divorce, what we're saying is that something can separate us. Something can separate us from the love of Christ. That things could in fact, get so bad that Jesus would divorce us. Jesus is saying that divorce was never a part of God's original plan for marriage. He's saying God made the two into one. So how can the one be torn into two again? Apart from it being as painful and as unnatural and as traumatic as an amputation an amputation of the self. But divorce was rampant then, and it's rampant today, even in the church. And even if you're not divorced, right? Husbands and wives, aren't we constantly failing at representing through our marriage the covenant relationship between Christ and his church? I'm called as a husband to represent every day in the way that I love and serve Angela the way that Jesus loved and served us by laying down his life for his church. And I'm constantly failing, constantly failing. And so what's the people, what's the hope for failures like us? What's the hope that we can have in our failures? The Pharisees come back at Jesus and they say in verse seven, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? 
The Pharisees are asking, okay, Jesus, if divorce wasn't part of God's original plan, then why did Moses allow for it? The Pharisees are trying to find their hope in claiming that divorce was okay. Moses said so for any and all reasons. The Pharisees are trying to find their hope by lowering God's standards, by lowering God's standards for marriage. So that's one way. That's one way we can find our hope, find our hope in our failures, just by saying, uh, it's, it's no big deal. Nobody's perfect. Everybody sins, and God forgives by lowering God's standards, right? But Jesus answers, verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus says, Moses allowed for divorce in the case of sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. And the church has traditionally understood this to mean adultery. And so is Jesus taking the side of the Shammai school, saying that you can get a divorce if there's adultery? Well, that would be very unlike Jesus, right? His pattern of teaching has always been to elevate the standard of righteousness than what we thought. He says things like, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, even if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment, right? He's saying, you don't murder, but I'm saying, even in anger, when you act out against your brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. He elevates our understanding of God's standard. So how is he elevating the standard here? He says, yes, adultery is such a defiling act against the marriage covenant that it could lead to divorce, that it could lead to divorce, but it doesn't have to. Why am I saying that? Because Jesus changes a word. Jesus changes a word. The Pharisees asked in verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? But Jesus answers in verse 8, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Those are two very different words, aren't they? Command and allow, right? It's a concession, not a commandment. Because divorce within a Christian marriage communicates something so wrong that the covenant relationship between Jesus and his church can end and it can be broken. Therefore, divorce is never commanded in the Bible. And many sermons have been preached that have stopped at the God hates divorce part and leaves a great many people without hope. But God is more merciful than that. And the scriptures are more nuanced than that. And so there are some biblical grounds for divorce. The case of adultery is offered here in Matthew 19. And Paul also allows for divorce in the case where an unbelieving spouse abandons the believing spouse in 1 Corinthians 7. What about the case of abuse, you may be asking? Well, first of all, if you're a husband here and you're abusing your wife, you need to stop. You need to repent. You need to get help, and we will help you get help. If you're abusing your wife, you're saying something about Jesus. You're saying that he's not someone who lays down his life for his bride, but you're saying that he's a husband that hurts and abuses his bride. And there's a condemnation and a judgment and God's eternal wrath reserved for you unless you repent, unless you beg God for forgiveness. 
unless you beg your wife for forgiveness. And if you're here and you're a wife who is in an abusive relationship, you need to get out. We'll help you get out. But at the same time, we need to realize that even in extreme situations, such as adultery, abandoning, and abuse, it's important to note that these are concessions, not commands. An allowing, not a commanding. Even in the case where there's been abuse, I've seen couples separate, not divorce. Separate, not divorce. And over time, through counseling, through prayer, through biblical community, come to healing and restoration. And notice Jesus said to Moses here, says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart, it says. Because of the hardness of your heart. It's not just that there's adultery and so you're commanded to divorce. And it's not there's adultery and so you're allowed to divorce. But in the case where there's adultery and hardness of heart, you're allowed to divorce. Jesus is taking a stance above Hillel, above Shammai, but nevertheless still offering the concession. Well, what does that mean? What's happening here is that Jesus is giving a concession to divorce and remarry in the case where adultery has taken place and there's an inability, as it were. There's an inability to restore the marriage through forgiveness and reconciliation, either because the offending spouse is refusing to repent or because the offended spouse is refusing to forgive. The inability to restore the marriage after adultery stems from what Jesus is calling hardness of heart. The Bible describes the moment of our salvation as the moment in which God replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And so a hardness of heart describes a condition in which we are unable to feel God's work. We're unable to hear God's word. We're unable to receive God's grace in our lives, just as we were unable before God saved us. It means that in that moment where you're heart of heart, in that moment, not that you are an unbeliever, but you're at least acting like an unbeliever either by refusing to repent from adultery or refusing to forgive the one that's repenting. This is falling exactly in line with what we've been talking about the last two weeks, right? Jesus instructing us on how to deal with sin within the body of Christ through confession, through repentance, through forgiveness, forgiving significant debts, forgiving significant debts in light of the insurmountable debt that we've been forgiven by Jesus. That's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. A marriage covenant that's so strong, that's so committed, that it can even withstand something as horrific as adultery through repentance and forgiveness. Well, that would be ideal, wouldn't it? But a concession, but a concession is something that takes into account our weakness our inability at times to do that which is ideal. And so in light of that, a concession provides a way in which we can be protected from the full consequence that our hardness of heart can bring. The whole idea of a concession is a mind-blowing kind of thing. What this is showing us is that our God is a God who doesn't just deal in commands, but in concessions. If our God is a God who just dealt with commands, there would be no hope for us, right? There would be no room for weakness or inability to obey at times 
Never. If a holy and infinite God commanded something of us and we disobey, well, that would be it. But we have in Jesus a God who doesn't just give us commands, but offers us concessions. You see, we try to find hope in our failures by lowering God's standards, but God gives us hope in our failures by offering us more grace, right? You see, as Jesus elevates our understanding of God's standards, we realize that we're even greater sinners than we ever thought. But as Jesus elevates our understanding of God's grace, we realize that we have in Jesus a greater Savior than we ever dreamed. So God did. God did, by his grace, offer us the concession to divorce. He did offer us the concession. But taking a hold of the concession should never be done flippantly, right? Anytime you're seriously contemplating taking a hold of the concession to divorce, we should be feeling two things. First, the tremendous weight of the decision. The tremendous weight of the decision because you realize that in taking a hold of the concession, you're not just giving up on your ability to restore your marriage, but you're giving up on God's ability to restore the marriage. And you're not just saying something about your spouse that they're too hard-hearted. I don't ever see them being able to change but you're also saying something about God and his ability to change hearts. You're saying, I don't ever think God can change their heart. But he's a God who's able to even replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. But at the same time, at the same time, you ought to feel so tremendously loved and cared for because you have in Jesus a God who takes into account your weak condition. He's taking into account the level of betrayal and the pain that adultery can bring. And though it was never God's original intent for your marriage, nevertheless, he provides you with a concession in which though you may choose to divorce your spouse, he will never choose to divorce you. And that's what the cross is all about. We were the faithless ones, weren't we? We were the faithless ones. We were the adulterous ones that went after all sorts of other things for our worth, for our happiness, for our satisfaction. And so he was free, right? So he was free, right? Jesus was free to be done with us. He was free to divorce us. But instead of demanding that we be condemned for our adultery and our unfaithfulness, he was condemned for us. Instead of saying, put him away, He was saying, I'll be put away. At the cross, God the Father was was saying to Jesus, whatever the cost, whatever the cost, go get her. At the cross, God the Father was saying to Jesus, whatever needs to be done, go get her. Whatever needs to be paid, pay it and get her back. That's the weight. That's the beauty of the covenant that we're called to represent in our marriages. Let's pray and ask God for help. Let's pray. For the singles in the room, will you contemplate this covenant that he's made with you? And will you thank him for it? 
And will you commit to God to count the cost of representing such a weighty, beautiful covenant before making this kind of covenant with someone else? If you remember in the last part of the text, Jesus talks about eunuchs, eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And at the very least, he's talking about singles who who are receiving their singleness as a calling. And you're saying, as long as God would have me be single, I'm doing it for the sake of his kingdom. Paul even says it is better to be single than to be married. Because he says, if you're single, you have an undivided heart before God. Husbands' hearts are divided. They think about God, but they also have to think about their wives and their children. Wives' heart are divided. They think about God, but they also have to think about the needs of their husbands and their children. Paul says, this is the beauty of singleness. I get to have an undivided heart before God. And you're not missing out. You're not missing out on the fullness of the human experience. The most complete human being to ever exist was Jesus and He lived a life of singleness. To the divorced in the room, will you thank Jesus that you have in him someone who refuses to let you go? Will you thank him that though your earthly covenant might have ended, your heavenly covenant will never end? For the remarried in the room, will you thank him that he is the God who makes all things new? And whether this is your second marriage or third or fourth, that God would make this your last marriage. Will you pray and ask him for that? That he would make this marriage your most faithful marriage. That he would make this marriage your most beautiful marriage. And to the married, will you thank him for keeping you? That in a world where so many marriages end and break, that it was not by your merit you've stayed together, but by God's grace, Will you thank him for your spouse? That out of seven billion people on planet Earth, just as God especially chose Adam for Eve and Eve for Adam, that he brought you two together and bound you two as one. Will you pray for the strength to commit to the oneness, no matter what the cost? So, Father, marriage is 
from you and through you and to you. Singleness is from you and through you and to you. Whatever the calling it is that you have placed upon our lives, Lord, will you give us the grace to be faithful? We thank you that in you we have a God who knows our frame, who deals with our weaknesses in the gentlest of ways. But at the same time, Lord, will you make us strong? Will you make us faithful to represent to this world the kind of covenant that we've been called into with Christ Jesus? Pray that you would make us faithful here, Lord. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.